Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Meltthology. Meltthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works. Show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9.30 p.m. we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme, and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their Meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at Meltthology on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck, and that is at Melt underscore Thology. Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles and La Luz de Jesus Gallery, as well as the Pop Sequentialism blog and um, traveling art exhibition. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and I'm very, very happy to have as my guest today, Miss Ann Shen. Hi. Hello. And um, Ann actually was, full disclosure, she was uh, my assistant at La Luz de Jesus Gallery for a while when she... Um, Maybe a year out of art school, right? I was still in school. You're still in school, okay. Mm-hmm. And um, what we're going to talk about today is, I think, something that will be very informative to people who I think enjoy what we do on the show. And it's talking about making that transition from art school into a career. And uh, one of the reasons why I, I selected Anne for this particular discussion is that unlike almost everybody else we've had on the show, there's been a lot of people who have, we've we featured self-publishers and people who have really been um, kind of bankrolling their own enterprise. And then we've had people who started in the industry decades ago. And so we've got this, this these two very different models, and I don't think we've ever really covered what people probably see as the standard model of, how you have a career in art, which is that you graduate from college, you get a job, and someone says, hey, we'd like to publish your book. (laughs) So I hope this is um, uh, sort of illuminating, and I'm sure that it will be. But um, I think what we'll first talk about, and um, I guess we should start off first with, um, talk to us about this project that's coming up. Okay. I just... Actually, I'm in the throes of editing right now. Mm -hmm. My first book, Mm -hmm. Bad Girls Throughout History, which Mm -hmm. is coming out with Chronicle Books in the fall. Now, if you're you're unfamiliar, uh, Chronicle Books is a major publisher. I mean, you're talking about somebody like Random House, you know, the, um, the type of publisher that gets into every, every bookstore. And even though, you know, your brick and mortars are disappearing, a lot of the books that you're going to see on Amazon.com or any of the um, mail-order sites are going to be Chronicle books, a, a good portion. I'm not sure what their market share is, but it's giant. It's huge. And so how did how did this come about? So I started the project about four or five years ago, and it was a zine. Mm-hmm. So it was a small project that I just self-published, literally printed and stapled myself, self-published. Yep. And I took it to ZineFest, shared it with big bloggers to kind of get some noise going on about it. Mm-hmm. And I've just been working on It's a passion project, so it's something that I've worked on and off throughout those four years. And once it was started being picked up by blogs, I got contacted by an agent, a book agent, mm-hmm. um, a year and a half ago. 
Do you know where were they? Was this an independent agent, or did, were they with a firm? She's with an agency. Mm-hmm. They also represent. Um, my agent also represents like Ali Brosh of Hyperbole and a Half, mm-hmm. and Nick Offerman. So it's like a broad range of. Nick Offerman, who famously <laughs> makes his own boats from hand. Yeah, <laughs> which is amazing. I love that guy. Well, the um, so this is kind of I think what people think of as the model that um, you produce something, somebody amazing sees it. And they contact you and say, hey, we, we'd really like to do this. But it is so actually uncommon <laughs> that it's thought of as sort of the cliche, as the, the regular way of doing things. But these days, that is a very uncommon model. And I have to imagine that when you're taking this zine to, to Zine Fest and you're taking it to, um, you know, you were obviously at, at Kamikaze recently. Uh, no, it was at WonderCon um, and at, a designer WonderCon and Decon, Long Beach Comic Con. So I mean, and and mainly local stuff. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like you were traveling across the country. You were it, these were all places that you could travel to rather easily. Granted, we're a little bit spoiled in Los Angeles yeah. that that there's a lot of industry here and that there's a lot of those types of events. But that the scenario should be the same in places like New York, major cities, um, San Francisco, um, possibly even Chicago. That and probably Portland, probably Seattle. But that um, it's not luck, and um, and your your story is very good. I I had the pleasure of seeing that zine when you first produced it, and it was right before graduation as a graduation project. And at, at Art Center, where she where she went to school, the um, one of the programs that all graduates in illustration were to participate in producing at least one edition of a volume. It could be a book. It could be a zine, and Anne's book was, as the title would suggest, Famous Women from History, and there's there's some great iconic characters. Now, that's a very universal thing, and while it's got your specific art style, and it's very stylized, and it's it's a very cute um, type of um, modern um, kind of, I would say, skews very pop, that it's a type of, of artwork that isn't um, so genre, that it's it's got a wide reach. And I'm going to stop paying you compliments in a second, so you don't have to get too uncomfortable. But the um, what I think is is great about this is that because of that, that is what hooks someone at a publishing house. But they still have to become aware of it. So when you started sending this out, like what were some of the sites that you started sending to? Um, how did you think to do that even? Because I know a lot of people would produce a zine, and they would only think of just like selling it, you know, at their table and something that they would have with their friends and would have no problem with keeping a closet full of 1,500 zines if they produced that many until eternity, handing them out well into their 50s and 60s. But um, that you must be getting the kind of feedback that someone said, oh, you should send this to such and such a blog or such and such a site. So how did you, how did that start? I, well, I decided to go back to art school because I was spending most of my time working I was working full-time in-house, but I was spending most of my time reading design blogs and art blogs. And so I kind of decided, I think this is what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And so that was already the audience that I was a part of mm-hmm. and the audience that I could see what their interests were. Now, you said go back to art school. Yeah. So there's there's a a going to art school, leaving art school. No, I um, I actually graduated from UCSD with a degree in writing, in creative writing. Gotcha. And then I worked for nonprofits as a writer for several years and an event planner. And then during that time, 
I was reading a lot of design blogs. It was becoming a big thing. It was like 2008. Yeah, that's kind of the birth of the popular design blogs. Yeah, and I was like, since I was a kid, I designed my own blog and had my own domain. And so I was always kind of in that world. So I was watching things evolve, but there are people who are like me, who are of the same demographic. A lot of them are women. Mm -hmm. And so they like the same things I liked. And I was seeing a lot of artists actually who maybe went to art school and then didn't find a job right away. So then they started getting on this thing called Etsy. So I was just watching all this happen. And then I decided I want to get serious about it. So I decided to go to art school. Very important detail there. (laughs) Very important detail that um, you got a writing degree before mm-hmm. you went to art school. Now, this is this is probably going to be something of a, um, a thunderclap for people who are listening to this because I think a lot of people feel like they're either one or the other. And even people that do write and draw their own comics may think of themselves as an artist who has written their own comic um, and – in the case of a writer who doesn't illustrate, then they're clearly just a writer. But um, because you have this dual skill set mm-hmm. that you can write and you can draw, that that opens up a whole new arena of possibilities as far as, well, number one, keeping costs down and getting stuff done. You know, Certainly a writer would have to engage an artist who hopefully is dependable and <laughs> <laughs> not, not a very, very common thing. Um, and that would be either willing to work for no pay or little pay or um, for spec and for credit. And you really have to match up with the right person in order to, you know, lunge forward in that type of business arrangement. As someone who can do both, I'm wondering, did did you start with, I'm going to write this thing and it makes sense to do it as illustrations or did you start with illustrations and say I'm gonna populate these illustrations with a backstory and then it comes together as this one project how did that evolve so when I started the project it was just illustrations and then lettering like their names and then a one-liner about what they did because I wanted to focus on a broad range of women who were very well known Mm -hmm. and I wanted to maybe do a one-line about something you didn't know about them Mm -hmm. or introduce a bunch of women that None of it's scandalous. None of it's scandalous stuff. (laughs) Um, And actually, the written component came after my agent and I were talking about it, and she found out that I have a writing background. Mm -hmm. And she asked me, would you be interested in expanding? Actually, we pitched it without the written component first. Mm -hmm. And once I was doing calls with editors, a lot of them asked me, would you be interested in writing content to go along with um, the illustrations, because right. it was mostly just an illustrated book. Right. And I said, absolutely, I would love to do that. And so I did that. <laughs> and so now as this project starts coming to fruition, you were obviously working on other things as well. Yes. So where were you employed when this when this started to go down? Well, so I've been working on the project on and off, like I said, for four years. And through that time, I had had several jobs. Mm-hmm. And when the agent contacted me, I was at Mattel, and I was working as a packaging designer, Mm -hmm. and we met, and I, you know, did some research to make sure she was a legitimate agent, Mm -hmm. and she was lovely, and she really understood the, she really understood the book, she Mm -hmm. understood the audience, which is super important, because I did not always have that kind of support when the project came about. Right. And so, 
once we met in person. She's based in New York, but she was out in L.A., and so we met in person, and it turned out great. And then it was just basically – I signed with her, and then it was basically up to me to produce the book proposal. Right. And that, that's a big problem, too, for some people who don't understand how that system works, which is that you know, getting the agent isn't the end of the game. It's the beginning of the race. And um, a lot of people are just actually running around in circles in the parking lot outside the racetrack. <laughs> and unless you're able to kind of – and sometimes it's a lottery and sometimes it's luck and sometimes it's that you find the right agent, discovers your work, and they're very into it. Um, I know that there have been several people who have gone through several rounds of rejection because the agent that got sent out by a company or by their boss to check out the talent just was not in – it wasn't their their cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And so um, it wasn't until the right person discovered their work that they were able to kind of push it to the next level and then develop it and go from there. And then there's like, you know, when you talk about things like comic books or um, to a lesser extent um, children's books, but really with most sequential art, the company that's publishing is going to have strong opinions about what makes it in and what doesn't make it in. And that's generally only a factor if it's material that would be classified as mature like pg-13 or above and so with, with your project that's really not a factor and it's it's kind of um it's great for kids it's great for adults it it has that kind of crossover appeal between age groups that like rocky and bullwinkle had you know for the generation that's you know a little bit older than me where as a kid i watched rocky and bullwinkle and i scratched my head and then, like, an adult would be in the room and they would snicker and they'd just walk out of the room like, wow, I can't believe that they just said that. The way that perhaps I was looking at Ren and Stimpy when nieces and nephews were watching that show and I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe they just had that in a cartoon and that my, my you know, younger family members have no idea what they're talking about, but they're still enjoying it. Well, I'm going to take a quick break for um, to get our sponsors uh, a word in. And uh, then we'll be right back with Ann Shen. This is Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. See you in just a few moments. Melt You, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me today as my guest, Ann Shen, who is publishing a book through Chronicle Books um, coming up soon. Um, we're talking about that transition from art school into an art career and how these things develop. And I think what's important, we've, we've discussed the fact that you had come out of a college with a writing degree and then decided to pursue an art degree on top of that. And so you're talking about a space of you got four years for your your writing, and then you've got three years of art school, and how much time was in between? Probably about three years. Don't worry, I'm not piecing together your age. <laughs> but the, um, so I think that one of the things that I've always spoken to art students about, and as someone, you know, I, everybody who's listening to this podcast is probably aware, but if you're not, I, I do run a gallery. I run the Luz de Jesus Gallery in Los Angeles, um, which is as far as. Um, pop surrealism artwork a, a kind of pivotal and important place and I can say that because I didn't open the gallery I, I merely worked there and have run it for a few years but um, Billy Shire set up in 1986 we're entering our 30th year and so having been around that for a very very long time I've seen a lot of different types of, of artwork and a lot of different types of trends in the way that things develop and when we go and visit schools and people students show us up their portfolios 
um, the things that stand out to me are going to be a different criteria than, say, maybe somebody who runs uh, a white cube gallery and shows me in the abstract expressions. They're going to go on a different track. Since we've always been focused on illustration, the students with the illustration chops have always stood out to me. And one thing that I've always wished for was earlier access to the students, that I generally don't see them until they're about to graduate. And maybe in that last term. And so often right before their grad show, so they're already they've already gone through the system. And my advice is always this that if you can take time off between semesters, do. Because especially at art school, but it's great because you had some time to kinda think about a whole general education with a focus on writing and have other jobs and go do things and then make a decision about how you wanted to alter what was what was working and not working for you. And then You've already got that ahead, so you can go to art school and you can kind of be pretty driven about it. You can have a pretty good idea, well, this is what I'm here for and this is what I'm going to do. But kids that go into art school as their only college get bombarded with all kinds of different ways of doing things, different um, media to work on, and every semester and they might have four or five different types of creative classes in that first year, and then when they come back for the second semester, it's like, how much did you retain? And then you go to the next year, and it's you know it's a, a three semester system I think at, mm -hmm. at Art Center, and so there's really no time to let that skill that you just learned set in, get practice, you know germinate and become something else. And so you're just always constantly on to the next thing. And I've noticed that most of the students that really succeed have taken at least a semester off, generally two, maybe not back to back, but somewhere within the program. And um, you know someone like Zoe Milk comes to mind that um, she was able to take time off and practice and I think I think she was waiting for them to um, she was not going to come back unless they gave her more favorable um, student loans and because she was a great student they wanted to bring her back and so it was worthwhile to them to give her more scholarship and more grants in order to keep her at the school because certain students are definitely good for business and We've talked with a few people who have been in and out of art schools that will, some people see certain colleges as, especially in, in art school, as little more than a diploma mill where you're paying for a specific piece of paper to further your career. And other people see art school as an incredible necessity. And um, where do you stand on that? Like, do you think that, do you think that art school was extremely beneficial? Do you think that you could have, on this path without it do you think that you you learned what you needed to learn and I guess as the, the tale to that and take these in any order you want save this one for last was it worth the price of admission I get asked this question a lot from people who you know see my work and then are kind of in a similar position of whether they should go back to school and take that leap mm -hmm. and for me it was absolutely worth it mm -hmm. I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't go to art school and I had asked that question a lot, too, when I was going back, because who needs two bachelors, right? Right. And one of my friends said to me, and he actually went back to Art Center, too, and he said to me, look, you can do this on your own, but it'll take you 10 years, mm -hmm. or you can go back to school, and it may take you three years. Because you don't get a critique when you're not at art school, or at least you don't get one that's worth anything. Exactly. And I think that why we've definitely shown self-taught artists over the years, the gallery that, that I run but that it's always easiest for me working with students 
you know, art school kids, people that have training, because if I say something that's critical of their work, um, they know that my reason for doing so is to make it fit for both parties so that it's good for the gallery, which means it's good for them. And that kids who don't have that kind of thick skin that a daily critique brings feel insulted um, or don't know how to take a critique. They maybe came from an, I think honestly, if you're a, a self-taught artist and, um, and you've decided to pursue art as a career, that you've gotten the type of feedback and support that said, yeah, you need to go do that. And so you're used to that. You're used to that, you know, nothing but, you know, bunnies and rainbows. It's all positive. It's all great. And that often that that it's great to have that type of support. I wish that more people did, but that that means that you, your view is a little bit skewed. Like you don't have a genuine window to what is important to the people who need to make you money. Yeah. Well, I think some people in school still don't learn that. I think that's, yeah, that's true. Too. Um, Everybody's that, been through a crit where somebody just does not know how to take criticism and they yeah. fight the teacher and they fight the class. But And I think what was great about going through school is just getting that mileage. Mm-hmm. There's no other time I would have been able to just focus on drawing and just sitting down and doing a thousand life drawings a week mm-hmm. if I had been working full time and having other life stuff to worry about. Yeah. And so just getting that serious mileage and then just being around other people who are just as serious and constantly raising the bar, you kind of get more of a realistic taste of... Comparison, yeah. That um, Having peers is very important. And that's another thing, too, that, that most successful artists are part of a peer group. Mm-hmm. And um, if there's somebody that falls outside of the peer group and they, they see themselves as kind of an outsider, um, that that isolation can be damaging because there's nobody to help you raise the bar in your own work because you don't have an immediate comparison. And competition is good in art school to an extent, of course. Um, and Then you kind of learn in the end that you're just competing with yourself. Yes, anyway. the race is long and yeah. it's only with okay. you. And that's something that you learn very quickly, that someone will always be better than you yeah. and someone will always not be as good as you. But in the end, it doesn't even matter because sometimes the person who's not as good may get the prize. And so you kind of just have to compete with yourself and just trust what you're doing. And also with the criticism thing, like you also learn after a while, oh, not every, not every critique is valuable. Not every teacher knows everything. That's correct. And you kind of just have to learn what applies to you. Mm -hmm. And that is enormously helpful when you're in the work world because people are working towards a common goal, which is usually making money, mm-hmm. and nothing is personal. And sometimes you're just like, wow, you're going to work under people who you don't agree with. And that teaches you how to deal with that and manage that. Yeah, to not be defensive and get fired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, another thing, too, and I, I this becomes part of the bigger discussion of um, of how far back having a vision takes you, that um, that the project that is that will be published by a major publisher that you've been working on, you know, for about four years, is going to be the sum total of your experience up to that point as well, mm-hmm. to an extent, and that those roots go back a little bit further. So even though you started with the idea of pursuing writing mm-hmm. and went into art, it's at what point is there a or is there a point I should ask? Um, in your childhood or young adulthood where that 
became the decision process? Like, was it something like, I always knew I was going to do this, or, you know what, honestly, until I was 10, I thought I was going to be, you know, a politician or something. Oh. No, I don't think anybody thinks that. <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that you might have had other plans. At what point did it start to manifest? So, when I was four, probably in kindergarten, and they ask you what you want to be when you grow up, I said I wanted to be an artist, and my mother cried. She was like no, you're going to live with us forever. We're going to have to support you. And I was, you know, horrified because I'm like, I'm a firstborn child and I'm like, you know, seeing your mom cry about something you said is like never good. And so I asked her, oh, what should I be then? And she was like, you should be a doctor, which is a terrible idea because I get like wobbly need at the sight of blood. Yeah. Um, and my dad passes out at the sight of blood. He passed out like when my brother and I were born. So they should have known. We, we know who you take after. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, you know, for a couple of years, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. And then, but then like around fifth grade, I remember my mom had a typewriter at home and she's, she's an accountant. So that's why she had a typewriter. And I just started using it to write stories. And so that's actually what I did. Like ever since I was a little kid, I always wrote stories. I had some art classes here and there, but I was like more serious about storytelling and I just wrote novels and I would like bind them and share them with all my friends and they would be series books and that's what I did. And so it became pretty, and I, you know, then once high school and stuff came, I was a very serious student and took a ton of AP classes, did all the things you're supposed to do mm -hmm. um, and was an editor on the newspaper. And so it just seemed like I was going down that route, everything seemed to line up. When I went to UCSD, I also continued to work on the newspaper there, work in the creative writing department, and I was also interested in film. And I think that tied together my visual interests and my storytelling. Certainly. And so I was always going to be a writer, but you can't be a career novelist, and I was very realistic about that. I was going to say, did your mom cry even harder when, <laughs> when you said you were going to be a writer? No, actually, she was very supportive of it because she knew that I was really good at it. And I would ask her, how do you know you're, I'm really good at it? And she would just say, because you tell me. <laughs> yeah. So. Was she a voracious reader as well? She was a voracious reader, but she actually reads in Chinese. She never read any of my stuff because she's not a very fluent English reader. Interesting. And so... When I went to school, okay, so after I finished, after I graduated, I knew I wasn't going to work as a career novelist right off right, the bat. Right. So I was just like, okay, I'm in it to get life experience. So then I decided to intern at 826LA, mm -hmm. which is a great experience because I was with a lot of other people who were young and creative. Explain what that is because a lot of people who are going to listen to this are going to be completely unfamiliar with that. Okay, 826LA is a nonprofit. It was started by Dave Eggers, a writer up in San Francisco, and it's basically a nonprofit writing center where kids can go there after school and get free after school tutoring. They do um, like field trip programs into schools, and it basically promotes like writing and reading literacy skills, and it, they cover kids from like I think kindergarten to high school. We actually have an event coming up for McSweeney's. Oh, cool. Who, uh, yeah. Dave Eggers is um, founded the, that. the founder of McSweeney's. And um, working in a public space where you're getting, well, number one, you know the funding is coming from somebody who is very respected and very well read and very widely read and also publishes perhaps the, maybe the, literary descendant of the Paris Review is perhaps the believer. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that I know a lot of writers who are 
they would give anything to get into the Believer, to be published in the Believer. That's like their dream. Mm-hmm. If they got one one article placed or even a, a, an album review in, in the Believer that they would feel like they made it and they could, you know, die happy. <laughs> but um, I think for for the millennials that Edgar's Empire is a combination of Grove Press, which was the publisher in the, in the 50s and 60s that were publishing the beat novelists, but also Jean-Paul Sartre and, um, you know, the absurdist dramas of um, surrealist playwrights and, you know, I th- Bukowski, I think, at a certain point, but certainly um, Miller. And somewhere between that and The New Yorker with a, a slightly lower brow, but an equivalent education and knowing that somebody like that is behind a program that you walk into has got to be I mean if not inspirational daunting or did you see it as sort of a wow this is an amazing opportunity I'm just gonna run with this it was really exciting mm-hmm. I think it helped me feel more because I moved to LA mm-hmm. I was brand new to LA and I think it helped me feel more like, okay, I'm in this community. I found, like, this is my community. This is my type of people. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, in between, I had a bunch of crappy jobs. <laughs> and so it was nice to get that right off the bat when I, I moved to LA. I me wasn't one of those crappy <laughs> jobs. <laughs> no. Um, it was way before, like, I decided to go to art school and right, get a serious right. skill. Um, and so, like, like I said, with those crappy jobs, all of them, I did writing for it. Mm. But obviously it was not creative writing. It was, right. you know, business writing. And I was I knew I had to get experience if I wanted to be a career novelist. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, how do you kind of plan to have experience, right? Yeah. So then I was like, you know what? I want my day, my daily life, my like day-to-day job thing to actually be something interesting too. Mm-hmm. And that's when my mom actually said to me, well, you were always interested in art, so why don't you take some extension classes and like see if that's something you'd still want to do and so I did and I took like my first life drawing class Mm -hmm. and then I decided I was going to apply to Art Center that year and I was just going to keep applying until I got in but fortunately I got in the first time yeah I went to a four-year college Mm -hmm. and I think that it's really important to do that I mean I don't think it's absolutely necessary to do that but I think it's an important time of personal development and growth Mm -hmm. and so I think even for the people who don't go on and become, like, specifically an artist in whatever discipline that they went into, mm-hmm. that they learn skills about entrepreneurship and kind of individualism that you wouldn't necessarily learn from a liberal arts university, perhaps. Right, right. Um, and then what was your second question? It was about I, the money? Yeah, I think uh, the, the job market. Oh, the job market. Yeah. Um, because I had applied for jobs and worked at professional level jobs mm-hmm. I kind of already knew that I was going to have an easier time with that right um, just because I think a lot of people don't understand and I probably didn't understand this as well when I first started working at 21 in a, my first real job mm-hmm. you kind of have to understand that you are providing a service and you're getting paid and that is all the job owes to you that you get paid and that's that's the transaction and I think maybe people have an expectation that Jobs will provide you something more than that, and right. I think that is just going to set you up for disappointment. Right, and I think that's that's a very important way of looking at that, that there are a lot of people who decide that they're going to have a career in the arts, 
and they have this romanticized ideal that, well, I love to paint, so I'm going to paint for a living, and I'm going to paint only what I want to paint, and I'm going to be a success. And I don't know anybody that's worked for since perhaps the 17th century. <laughs> um, and even they had sponsors. And they had sponsors. You know, they had, they had noblemen. Yeah. Noblemen and noble women and the church. And, um, and that's more, and that's still a stipend, um, job with expectations of And they still have to paint what they want, yeah. what their sponsors wanted. Yeah. And I think that people have this, um, skewed view of history and think that because these pieces are seen as masterpieces, that that's exactly what these guys wanted to paint. And I pretty much doubt it. And I know that both, um, Michelangelo and Botticelli were forced to destroy large caches of their artwork by, um patrons who were against their patrons so you had people like the borgias supported certain artists mm -hmm. and the um oh gosh who was it on the other side there's um another kind of italian royal dynasty family that um produced a lot uh, helped you know build florence and these two families being at odds would select their artists and if you were on the other side of the fence you could get in trouble and um, I, both of those artists had to destroy their own artwork. Wow. And I'm wondering, is that How their petty. personal work, you know? <laughs> yeah. Was that the stuff they really wanted to paint and we're never going to see it? Yeah. Because it was so strongly objected to. A lot of it was probably nudity, which was uh, still a very new thing to be painting mm. at that time, and especially in the context of religious paintings, that, um, you know, it, if it was too shocking or it, if it was the composition of it was in a suggestive form, that it would cause, um, you know, well, back then, I mean, my gosh, you know, it, it, you weren't bombarded with images like you are today. So every image had a real impact, and you probably had a certain amount of power if you were allowed to see it. It wasn't like a lot of peasants were going into galleries and seeing, you know, paintings, <laughs> yeah, and maybe right. in the churches, but um, often not in, in noblemen's homes. So um, this expectation of getting complete and total gratitude is a very new one. Yeah. Um, maybe in the 20th century, there have been a handful of artists who were able to really build careers off of that. I even question whether or not, um, and you can see it in the early work of Warhol, that his early work looks nothing like the work that mm -hmm. right. gave him fame. Right. And, and I actually like those fashion illustrations that he yeah, did a lot. It's interesting stuff. And even the stuff, you know, where we're still signing at Warhol mm -hmm. before he dropped yeah. today. And his mother did all the lettering on those things. That's interesting. Yeah. See, graphic design <laughs> background, the text, the lettering. See, this gets back into the whole sequential thing. People ask me, it's like, oh, you're going off, you talk about fine art, or you talk <laughs> about graffiti. I'm like, hey, it's all connected. It is all connected. So with that in mind, I didn't think I would ever write a book. I kind of thought that that dream's kind of shelved. I'm just going to focus full force on, you know, being the best illustrator and mm -hmm. designer I can be. And so when the book deal came around and they were like, do you – do you want to write it too? And I was like, absolutely I do. And in the end, like my contract, they only asked me for 20,000 words and I turned over 35,000 just because it was about the women, mm -hmm. but it was written in my own voice. So it's a very like approachable way to learn history and about these women's right. really fascinating lives. And you know, once you dive in, it's just like, what, what are the juiciest parts I want to like share? Cause I want to share like unexpected and you know, a new point of view. 
Um, like Hedy Lamar is one of the women I cover, and she was this beautiful Hollywood actress, but she also invented Wi-Fi technology because In she Star was bored. Of comic book. Yeah, <laughs> is she? Many Hedy Lamar comics in the 1950s. Yeah. Well, she was a fascinating woman. I mean, she was married to an arms dealer who was like a Nazi what? sympathizer. What? So she would just kind of she was a trophy wife at the time because she was in these like kind of blue films. It sounds like Notorious, um, <laughs> the Hitchcock film, you know, where oh, I haven't um, seen it. Where oh my gosh, Gregory Peck is working for the government and he's having possibly this illicit affair with this um, this trophy wife of this this Nazi sympathizer. Oh, interesting. And it's Ingrid Bergman. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Wow. I'd have, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. But she, like, eavesdropped on all these conversations that her husband was having, and then she escaped. You know, she left, mm-hmm. got herself a movie deal with MGM, came here, and then she was kind of like, oh, I'm bored, like, in between starring in all these movies. Wow. And she and one of her friends, who was a composer, like a music composer, they kind of figured out how, like, airwaves worked. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I couldn't cover the technology, give it justice, but basically she invented Wi-Fi and then gave the technology to the government during World War II, but they were like, okay, um, that's cool, but we were just bummed, you know, like in Hiroshima, or not Hiroshima, um, Pearl, Pearl Harbor, Harbor. Yeah. sorry. <laughs> that happened around the same time. So she discovers Wi-Fi, they give it to the government because they're tired of... Um, submarines getting bombed and they can't like figure out where it's coming from Mm -hmm. and the government takes it and then it gets classified but it gets shelved because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm. and then it didn't get declassified until like 50 years later which Mm -hmm. is when Bluetooth and Wi-Fi kind of became so by she's sort of on the ground floor of sonar yeah and that becomes the route for what we use as Wi-Fi yeah and you know almost in a very Tesla kind of way yeah, so that's like something you wouldn't have thought of because when I thought of Hedy Lamar, I just thought movie star. Right. Right. Forties movie star, beautiful. Yep. And so that was the kind of stories I wanted to tell about women who were more well known mm-hmm. or who had kind of a reputation that was maybe undeserved, or that they would get a reputation at a time where they lived, but if they live now, would not be a big deal at all, or would be revolutionary. Right. Right. From. From being seen as, oh, what are some of the terrible adjectives that um, people used to use? We won't use any of the bad words. Yeah, we words, don't need to get into it. But, um, <laughs> but now would just be seen as powerful and groundbreaking and definitely worthy of admiration. And I think it was the um, the unwanted competition um, by um, you know oppressive males. Yeah. Um, who are some of the other women on the list that are in the book? Let's see, Queen Elizabeth I is in the book. And, I mean, we all know Queen Elizabeth I, but once I started researching her, I mean, she shaped our entire modern world. Mm. Without her... No Shakespeare. Yeah, there'd be no Shakespeare. (laughs) Um, Who knows who would have discovered America and imperialized it. Mm. And so it's fascinating to kind of think about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Empress Wu Zetian, who was the first and only Empress of China. Mm -hmm. Her story... I've been in her summer palace. It is lovely. Oh, yeah, have you? Yes. I'd love to go. Um... Her story is very bloody to the point that when I was writing it, my editor would be like, can you elaborate on what human pig torture is? And then I would be like, oh, it's this. So I don't really think I want to include it. And she said, yikes. Okay, let's, you know, let's add some jokes or something to kind of lighten it up. Um, Because, I mean, but at the same time, I'm like, how much of this is real and how much it was just legend that built around Mm -hmm. because they were not used to a powerful 67 year old woman being in power. Right. And she started off as a junior concubine who was picked up by the emperor. 
She wasn't even born into it. Let that be a lesson to us all. <laughs> you can go. Speaking of art school, <laughs> no, but um, and the internship program. No, I joke. Yeah, and but, then of course there are like modern, modern some modern women too, like Nora Ephron and mm-hmm. um, even Tina Fey, because she was the first woman to win the Mark Twain Award, yeah. and that was around the same time that article in Vanity Fair about how women aren't funny was published so it was just like extra good (laughs) yeah that's that's fabulous now the um and when's this the book is scheduled for it's gonna be released September 27th September 27th 2016 yeah you can already pre-order on Amazon so get to your computers (laughs) and um title bad girls throughout history and your name and Shen. Absolutely. And I think this is a great place to um to leave off and probably have you back again. Yeah. And um but before we go, actually, I lied. There's one more thing, and I think it's one of the things that we do on this show is we talk about the very uncomfortable aspects of business. And so what can someone expect to have to pay to an agent? Oh. What type of percentages? Um I think 15% is normal. However, you don't pay an agent until they sell your book. Right. And so, so basically, you never see that money anyway. Yeah. And I know some people don't need an agent. Like the publisher will reach out to them directly. But I know that having an agent was instrumental for me because she had the contacts mm-hmm. and she knew the industry. But she also negotiated my offer up another 25%. Well, I'm going to gonna tell you something right now <laughs> that because – you are in that's a literary agent right if it had been on the opposite end of your skill set if it had been an art agent you can easily expect to be kicking 30 percent right which is kind of why i don't have an illustration agent yeah i think that's crazy numbers i mean granted if they're pushing your your rate up to the point that you don't feel that 30 percent then absolutely it's you know then it 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 becomes maybe a semantic argument down the line when you become really rather well known but i think that people need to pay attention to the duration of those types of contracts but um literary agents not much has changed in 150 years oh yeah and um you know in entertainment it's it's a much less as like in as an actor or um someone in one of the guilds in in hollywood whether it's the writers guild directors guild producers guild that agents i believe can only take i think they can only take five percent it might be ten percent but um managers can take anything so that um you you would be better served to most people who are listening to this by with an agent than with a manager. And those terms are very important if you're selling a Hollywood project. But um, yeah, I want to thank you for answering that. You know, we had Steve Bissett on in the second show and he just, he gave us all the numbers about publishing and residual rates and all that type of thing. And I know that in today's um, publishing world and especially with, um, with a boutique press type of thing, even under a large uh, publisher, like Chronicle, that every deal is going to be different and it's going to revolve around what they think the numbers are. And often um, creators will make um, a better percentage in repressing than they do on the initial pressing, which for most people doesn't happen because of the declining circulation of books, but that you always want to get whatever you can on the front end of a deal rather than the back end of a deal. That just serves everybody because you know you're getting it. But um, it sounds like you've got the right people in your corner. I'm really happy for you. I, I like I say, I, I remember receiving that the zine, the first the first run of zines which <laughs> I still have at home, and loved it. And I mean, there's also this there was musicians and recent musicians were mm-hmm. in that that first uh, zine edition, and seeing that 
taken out to the next um, logical um, expansion is fantastic. And as far as the lettering, is it still like handwritten? Yeah, I actually, that's where I am right now. I got the design back from the team, which did a great job on it. But now I have to letter all 100 yeah. women in addition to edit the whole thing. 35,000 words. Well, no, the copy is all. Oh, okay. The copy will be set, but the subtitles and the names of the women are all hand lettered mm-hmm. in addition to kind of other tertiary stuff. Well, excellent. Well, thank yeah. you so much for being my guest. And Shan, I thank you. This is Matt Kennedy. You've been listening to Pod Sequentialism on the Meltdown Podcast Network. Until next time, I bid you adieu. Thank you.